Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today joining me from Bainbridge Island up in Washington is Rosalys Peel. And Rosalys has a new book out called Mike and Me, an inspiring guide for couples who choose to face Alzheimer's together at home. And she co-created this book uh, with... Dan Zadra, who's a, a really good friend of mine. We've interviewed Dan on several other occasions on a podcast, Rosalys, and um, many of my listeners know him for his series of books as well. Good day to you. How are you doing? Morning. I'm doing fine. I'm going to give you a little heads up and to our listeners too. My name is really very tricky. It's Rose Alice, like two words. So it's Rose oh. Alice. I should have asked you from the beginning. So that's my fault because... I know it wasn't Rosalind, but I know a lot of people probably do that. So it's Rose Alice. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. All right. Well, good. So Rose Alice has written this book uh, along with Dan, and it is about her journey with her husband um, with Alzheimer's. And as we know, this is a pretty prevalent disease here in the United States and worldwide and growing. Um, the statistics are pretty uh, phenomenal. We hear it on the news all the time about what's happening. And this book takes a different viewpoint of this. And uh, Rosalind, I'm going to ask, tell the audience a little bit about you. Um, she is a registered nurse. Um, she also is a childbirth educator. She's Gotham Certified Couples Relationship Facilitator. And for over 30 years, she's been respected voice in the childbirth education movement. Um, she currently teaches classes at Swedish Medical Center up in the Seattle area and has been featured guest on NPR and the Today Show. Um, when her husband, Mike, was stricken with Alzheimer's, um, they searched for bookshelves for couples guides and that would show them how to deal with Mike's illness together at home. Unable to find that book, she came back after her husband's death with from Alzheimer's to write it herself. Uh, Mike and Me draws on 10 years of her journal notes along with her unique background in birth and family education. And it is quite a journey, um, and it's a great book, and it's an opportunity for those out there dealing with this to certainly take it from a different viewpoint. And let me just start there. Um, Rosalys, you have written this book and yet your first book, Mike and Me, is already climbing up on the Amazon's bestseller list. Um, tell us what made you think you could write a book like this and why you think it's resonating with so many people out there um, that are dealing with Alzheimer's couples? That's a, that's a great question because I certainly did not come from the background of a writer. But uh, when Mike and I started the journey, of course, I started looking for information to help us. And I really could not find anything that was hitting the information I needed. I needed just basic information how I could do this at home. And uh, 
so as time went on, I discovered I was learning things as I went along and thought those things could help others. And the other thing that was sort of amazing is I actually came with some unusual skills. One, I was involved in teaching a couple's relationship workshop at Swedish Hospital, so I knew how to promote good relationships, and it was just natural for me to put that in as part of the things that I did with Mike. So I think, you know, promoting our relationship was huge. And then um, on top of that, I loved to teach, so that was a natural for me. And then I was very fortunate to have a neurologist that actually watched how Mike and I were interacting and our neurologist said, Rosalis, you need to write about this. You need to tell others. So those were the things that gave me the inspiration and a little confidence that I could do this. Well, you've done a good job of it. And I think the fact that you kept these journal notes over the years really helped to bring a very crisp, clear message here. And Rosalis, you, the cover of your book promises new hope, help, and guidance. Uh, to nearly 3 million American couples who are dealing with Alzheimer's. Um, if someone's out there listening and their spouse is is dealing with it, whether it's a husband or, an, or a wife, um, what are those couples? What exactly would we learn or would they learn if they purchased this book? I really think the couple relationship piece is so important. You know, I think we all struggle to keep our relationship on track and to just know the little things you can do that make a difference. I mean, Mike and I obviously would have our conflicts through the process, as all couples do, and, you know, things like he didn't want an ID brace that he wanted to continue to drive. And because I knew how to deal with that, you know, simple things like, okay, back off, take a break, start again another day, do it gently, you know, point out what we're doing. I mean, research-based information uh, was absolutely huge. And I just put those forth to other couples that I think these are things that can be helpful. And then the other thing for me, I really knew about the disease, but I really didn't have a feel for the process, what would happen when. So in the book, I try to, you know, give a concept of how things might progress. Like in the speech chapter, I tell little stories about speech and my struggle with speech. But then I include journal notes, as you mentioned, and I give a little journal note out of each year, and you can clearly see how his speech progressed and how we had to work to keep communication on on track. So I think the relationship and the physical things that people learn in care, caring for someone and the timeline would be helpful for anybody dealing with this process. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because just recently on CBS Sunday Morning, there was a couple profiled, and I don't know if you actually saw that story or not, but obviously a long time marriage. They'd been married. I don't know exactly what the number of years was, but um, married for a long time and she was dealing, continuing to decline. And the actual cameras came in over a period of time. They literally um, would go in about every two years. They wanted to um, show the public what was happening to her over this period of time. And you know, you say a couple of weeks after your, after Mike was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you say in your book that you were both still in shock about the news. And then one day Mike came to you and confided his greatest fear to you. Can you tell uh, our listeners what that greatest fear was? That was fascinating because I'm thinking of his physical decline and what this is going to be like for him and what it's going to be like for me. And 
I remember the day so clearly because we were out in the yard and he'd been pretty grumpy about this diagnosis. And I went over and I was just kind of checking in, you know, what's going on because he was grumpy again. And he very clearly said to me, I don't want to leave you and I don't want to leave our home. And it was kind of an aha moment when it was like, oh, I was thinking of other things. He was thinking of he did not want to be away from our home during this illness. And mm. He did not want to leave me. And so that was a heads up. And, of course, I responded very quickly, oh, we can do this at home. And then I had that great fear, can we do this at home? So uh, that's really how the journey began. This was what Mike wanted to do. He did not want to leave me. He did not want to do this away from our home. And so we just progressed, and I have to say, literally, we did it one month at a time, one year at a time, one day at a time, and uh, I never knew for sure if we would continue the journey in our home or not, but we were able to, and uh, it all worked out for us. And it was 10-year journey, right? It was. From the time he was diagnosed until he died, it was nine and a half, and we certainly knew for years before something was wrong, and it took a long time to get the diagnosis. And uh, so I think, you know, at the stages when I didn't think I could do it, the answer was always getting more help. And I think sometimes we wait to do that. I actually also saw an interesting couple. It might be the same as the couple you saw. It was a 60-minute interview. And as I watched that, I clearly thought that one of the things that had been so difficult for that care provider is that he did not have enough help soon enough and that is truly the only way you can do it is is bring more people in. And for us, we were fortunate with friends and family and professionals too. And um, eventually, both agreeing, Mike and I agreeing, that we needed that kind of help. Well, he had actually, that gentleman on CBS had uh, waited a long time, as you said. And the reality was, in the end, had to get more and more and more help. Uh, but it was his desire. But I think the financial burden is an issue. And they brought that up in that interview that they had gone through all of their savings and so on. Speak with the listeners out there because many of these people that are going to be listening to this are dealing with that. And it does become an issue. And especially when you're getting expensive caregivers, what are some of the suggestions and ideas that you have? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I learned that I don't know if it's spoken about enough is there's that middle point where you don't really need a professional caregiver. So my daughter, son, and friends, good friend, had Mike come over one day a week because I still continued to work one or two days a week, mostly one day a week. At any rate, so we were getting by, and then it was clear I needed more help because I could not leave Mike at all by himself to go to the grocery store, do anything by myself. And so at that point, you start thinking, as it gets more difficult, do we need a care facility? Do we need professionals? And really, we had this middle point for a number of years where a dear friend of my daughter, a young mother with children who were in school, could come and spend a few hours with Mike here and there. And it made it possible for me to have the breaks I needed and, you know, for Mike to have somebody else who took him for a car ride or took him out for coffee or just hung out with him here at the house. That was huge, absolutely huge. And it saved us, you know, I can't even begin to tell you the dollars that were saved by using this middle person, which was a less expensive format than a professional and certainly less expensive than in a care facility. And certainly um, well needed. And then somebody also that, that Mike knew, obviously maybe at that point mentally he didn't know, but for you it was a big relief. Now of the top 10 diseases in America, Alzheimer's is 
the only one that is currently considered incurable. And yet you write in your book that you and Mike adopted the attitude that you were living with, not dying from Alzheimer's. What do you want to convey to our listeners out there that you're living with this, not dying from it? Well, I think there's two things. One is the number of years involved. You get the diagnosis and you're just overwhelmed with the diagnosis. But from the time of diagnosis until you reach the point where things are really complicated, you know, you're talking about, for most people, many years, many years. For us, we had a total of nine and a half years after the diagnosis. And I'd say the last two were most difficult. We actually were given a heads up. Mike would probably need to be in a care facility the last two, which did not turn out to be true. And of that, I'd say maybe the last nine months were really the most difficult. But Mike, clearly, clearly, once we had our little talk and we'd agreed we'd do it at home, there was a real shift in his attitude, and he made a very conscious effort of saying, you know, let's live in the moment, uh, let's savor this moment. He, that day in the yard, actually even said to me, let's get on with it. It was sort of like we'd spent months kind of grumpy and unhappy and angry, and he just made a very conscious effort to say, we only have so much time, let's do this right. And I was absolutely on board with that. And even when things got more difficult, I really, truly had the attitude of looking at what we still had. We still had a lot instead of looking at what we'd lost. And I think that was huge. I think from a Buddhist perspective, it kind of is the impermanence of, of life, impermanence of relationships, of permanence of our of our life at all. And I think when people come to grips with that, they also have this awakening within a spiritual awakening with inside themselves that, you know, hey, it is time to move on and nothing is permanent. And you you say in the book, many people have said that if a husband is stricken by Alzheimer's, his wife can either choose to remain a good wife or she must choose to be a good caregiver, but that she can't be both. In your book, there's this wonderful, hopeful chapter that disagrees with that. You write that you found out how to be both a good wife and a good caregiver. Um, And how did you manage that? How did you deal with that? I love that chapter because it was one of my great fears, and I think that's the bottom line for a lot of people, thinking you're going to fall out of love or your partner won't know you anymore. And I just so wanted to write that chapter because people had told me this could happen. So at any rate, again, I go back to the couple relationship because we just really – kept ourselves on track and, you know, little things like remembering hugs and kisses when we departed, that was absolutely huge. I knew that because I teach that information. It's research-based and I teach that information at the hospital to couples. So I never left Mike without giving him hug and kiss goodbye. And when I came home, I did the same thing. And Mike, that was part of his ritual with me too. When he was able to, he'd always leave the TV and come greet me at the back door and Later, when I came home and a caregiver had been with him, she always wanted to talk to me about things, and I I just never got caught up on that. I automatically went right to the bedroom if Mike was in bed or went over to him in the wheelchair and always greeted him first. And I think, you know, that made a huge difference on that end. And then, of course, there's a simple one, which is telling your partner what they do right instead of what they do wrong. We all know that, but don't always remember it, and that was just prime in my mind to praise Mike for what he did. And then on top of that, I think I needed to keep myself in here 
And so that was important that I took care of myself so I could take care of Mike and, you know, simple things like I love my night bath and, you know, a little quiet time and journaling was important. I loved my naps with Mike in the afternoon and I learned how to eat meals out by myself. Um, And then, you know, just not giving up things for myself. I kept going to book club, which was a challenge to figure out how to do. And I celebrated birthdays with friends. So I think it was that magic match of staying in love with Mike with all the things that would keep us in life and love and and then having time for me too. That's a really uh, poignant way that you put that. And I know many couples, as they go down this road, and obviously Alzheimer's associations and all kinds of counselors and people that deal with this. How did you guys deal with the intimacy element of it? Because I know over time, the couple that was profiled on 60 Minutes, obviously that becomes uh, a a factor. And you're a relationship counselor. Is this a question that you're open to answering? Oh, absolutely. And I don't ever quite give myself a relationship counselor title, although that's lovely to hear. Uh, I'm a teacher, so I hope that it's helpful for people. No, um, intimacy was one of those chapters I thought it was important to write about, so I do a chapter on that. But just one little component about that was our bed, and I think that's a sweet chapter. I think other people encounter this too. Of course, we'd been married 45 years, and we loved to snuggle and be close to each other in bed and had lots of wonderful chats. You know, pillow talk was always a part of our life. So that was important to keep, and yet as Mike's physical abilities did a hospital bed. I mean, we just could not, I could not function without him being in a hospital bed. I mean, I was trying to prop him up with pillows to help him eat sometimes, and then getting him out of bed when the bed was low was so complicated. And the social worker was great supporting me, and she said, you know, this is fine, but you really need a hospital bed. And it was like our conversation was disconnected. She's talking hospital bed. I'm talking about our marriage bed. And so, um, when she left, I was thinking, we're not going to do this. But at the end, I did decide we needed a hospital bed. But what we did is our queen-size bed went out, a hospital bed came in, and we had a small twin bed that we could move in next to it. So Mike and I had our beds right next to each other, and I would typically roll over. I made it possible to kind of divide, get through that crack area there with extra padding and snuggle him at night and... Um, I'm quite sure our sleep pattern was much better because of that. And um, even with infants, it's fascinating to know a little infant regulates their breathing with a parent. And Mm -hmm. I think that helped Mike. So knowing infant behavior as we came to the end of life was just sort of part of what I knew. And that cuddling and holding of Mike was important and certainly added a great deal to our intimacy on that level as well. Yeah, wonderful story. So statistics say that 65% of all people diagnosed with Alzheimer's are currently being cared for by a spouse or a family member at home. And you've written that your experience with Mike uh, convinced you that home care should be a viable consideration for all Alzheimer's couples. Um, For those that are out there dealing with this, how so? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is I don't want anyone to feel badly if they can't do it as long as Mike and I did it, because certainly every situation is different and everything worked for us to continue Mike's care in their home. So I think, you know, everybody needs to assess that and your age with your partner, your relationship, your circumstances, 
a lot of things make a difference there. But then on top of that, I would say, I think for everybody, just knowing how to keep a, a gentle, loving relationship together is absolutely huge. And I think staying in your home makes it easier to do that. I think everything for Mike stayed the same in his home. And I, I just think the course of his illness was easier for him because it was a familiar environment. And I think that's huge and um, makes a difference for that person. Um, and then on top of that, I think that uh, knowing the couple relationship things, timeline, what to expect, uh, my realization about life and death and birth going together is helpful as well. And then I think the final thing I'd say is that you really need to get help, and having more help makes a huge difference. Um, I hope I covered that. I'm, I'm kind of thinking exactly how that question was asked and hope I hit the key points there. You sure did. You sure did. And I think for our listeners, it's been a big help to just get an inside view because some people are starting the journey that are listening. Some people are really into the journey, but no matter where they are in the process, um, anything that um, you tell them, Rosalis, is definitely going to assist them. And you, some of the most heartwarming parts of the book are those that describe the magical relationship that developed between Mike and your new little granddaughter. Can Alzheimer's patients interact well with little children? Yes, yes, yes. I think it's it's a lovely little chapter. And, and again, you know, we were just kind of figuring it out as we went along. So at first we had a little tiny baby, granddaughter who came into our life. And at that point, uh, Mike was about year eight, I would say, when she came into our life. Uh, she was uh, with us. He was with us until she was two and a half. So little tiny baby, that's different. And where he was in the process was a little different at that time. But by the time he passed away, she was two and a half. And so she was certainly around him as a little toddler. And uh, one of the things that I'm so struck by is children don't have any preconceived idea about what people are like. So there's no judgment about wheelchairs or that you can't talk or that you walk funny. Uh, little kids just accept us the way we are, and that's a beautiful part of who they are. And they learn from us, you know, how we react to people with disabilities or, or limitations, and then they respond accordingly. And, of course, what our granddaughter saw was people who gave Grandpa hugs and kisses and loved Grandpa and talked to Grandpa. And, you know, Grandpa could do a lot of things with her. He could hold her doll, and we could have tea parties with Grandpa and uh Grandpa couldn't always, you know, talk, but he could smile and he could blow a harmonica, play a harmonica. And uh, we made tents, you know, the last week of his life. We had a tent made in the bedroom where Mike was and uh, had tea parties in there. And one day when she left, very close to the end of his life, um, I thought she forgot her doll. And no, she had left it with Grandpa to hold. So I think those are beautiful stories. And I'm reinforced by a wonderful care facility near us called Martha and Mary's. And they actually have a preschool connected with that same program. And so preschoolers come in and visit people uh, who are aging and who have Alzheimer's. So, no, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's possible and variables with each situation. Well, it was a heartwarming story that was told about Mike going get, to get the mail every day and that you ultimately put a yellow ribbon around it to help him identify it and that there was a teenage boy in your neighborhood they would watch your neighbors would watch kind of the progress of uh, of Mike's kind of decline as it happened, and um, 
do you want to relate anything about that story? Because there was a dog involved there as well that uh, Mike used to yes. like, a neighbor's dog. Yes, I think, you know, I think the whole part is just this community that happened. And I think we sometimes, when we're in need, we sort of want to pull back and not include people. But in fact, it's a gift to the whole community as well. So Mike used to go to the mailbox by himself, and I watched out the door to make sure he turned in the right direction because it was a little walk to the mailbox. And then pretty soon I discovered that everybody watched Mike go to the mailbox, including our teenage neighbor who just made sure that, you know, he got the mail and went in the right direction. And then, of course, Merlin was the neighbor's dog. And uh, pets are wonderful around people. And uh, during Mike's illness, we did not have a dog. However, he liked dogs. He'd grown up with dogs. And so, you know, Merlin always had a pet from him. And we had some interesting things happen with the dog after Mike died. Uh, Merlin usually did not come down and hang out in our driveway. And um, the next day, Mike died late in the evening. And the next day, Merlin came down and hung out in our driveway. So there were some interesting things that went on between him and, and the dog. Most definitely. Spiritually, dogs are pretty well attuned and are very intuitive and understand a lot of things that I think on an inner world, sometimes we don't, we, we miss it. Now, over the 10 years that you and Mike dealt with the Alzheimer's together, his ability to speak did severely decline, but you say that he still communicated with you and showed you his love for you uh, to the end. In what ways did you see him doing this or how did he do it? You know, speech became very limited, and if I was to say there was a few words that he kept really, really late, one of them was thank you. And that's huge. You know, when you're a caregiver, if somebody gives you a pat or looks in your eyes or acknowledges in some way that they appreciate you, you as a caregiver, it's huge. So for people with the disease, if, if you can continue to give back, that's, that's tremendous. So Mike actually could use the word thank you. I remember one time when he'd had a fall and we needed paramedics to come and they got him back in his chair and he literally was talking almost not at all. And yet he looked up, he put his hand, gave a pat and said the words, thank you. So that was, that was big. Uh, the other words that he was able to keep for an extended period of time, almost right till the last days were, I love you. And mm. he could tell me that. And um, when he couldn't do that, he could pucker his lips I'd be close to him, and he'd pucker up, and he'd want to kiss, and he continued to do that almost till the very last day. Um, his hand, even if he couldn't reach my hand, he'd raise an arm, uh, wanting to reach for my hand, uh, which were all ways that told me he was reaching out to me. And I'd say the one at the very end that uh, we never, ever lost were his eyes. And even the last day of life, I laid on the bed next to him during a nap time, and his eyes absolutely looked right into mine. And uh, so lots of ways to communicate other than speech and its movements, its gestures, its facial expressions. And, of course, we haven't even spoken of music. And music is another way that, you know, we bring people forward in their way to respond with movement or smiles or reactions. So... We think it's verbal, but it's so much more than verbal. Well, they say that Alzheimer's patients actually connect with music from the past, from the era in which they were born, and um, they were profiling that on um, that CBS morning show as well, that, that, that 
you know, she was becoming aware of the music and then she would start to sing. Uh, yet she hadn't actually spoken in quite some time, but remembered the music. So music therapy is a very, very big thing. Now, at the end of the book, you encourage all Alzheimer's couples to keep hope alive. You, like, you write that we're winning the war on Alzheimer's and it's happening and that you should bring renewed hope and courage to all the couples for the journey ahead. Why, uh, Rosales, are you so optimistic um, about the battle that most people are facing out there that are listening to this, dealing with somebody that has Alzheimer's in their family? Oh, there's so much happening today. It's so exciting. I continue to go to our local Alzheimer's regional chapter conference each year, and I was just there last week, and once again, I walk away going, you know, this is going to happen. We're going to win this fight. We right now don't have any, you know, absolute answers uh, for helping Alzheimer's or, you know, solving the problem with the magic pill, but they are right now really looking to find, by 2025, they're looking to find an effective way to treat and to prevent Alzheimer's, which is so exciting. I mean, there's the goal out there. The number of scientists and researchers working on it now is phenomenal. In 2017, they put in over $28 million in awards for doing research on, you know, trying to increase what we know about it. And they have over 129 uh, investigators working on this. So I just go to the conferences and I am, I'm so enlightened by what's happening And then on top of that, which is really exciting, is they're learning now that early diagnosis and treatment can make a difference, and they're really looking at Alzheimer's like heart disease. And when Mike was first diagnosed, people weren't really looking at the value of exercise and diet and, you know, preventive things or things that could make a difference. And today, um, they have comparison studies of people who are doing exercise and who are staying involved and how it, it, it slows the progress. And so I walk away from the Alzheimer's Conference with a great deal of hope and optimism that uh, they are going to find something. They're working really hard on research, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, I was just reading something before I came on the podcast, uh, Dr. Perlmutter, who's a prolific writer, um, about ketones um, and the importance that plays in actually the treatment of Alzheimer's at early stages. In other words, you can start treating this early and diet is really important, obviously. Um, I don't know the whole deep connection to that, but um, I do plan to actually listen to that uh, podcast that he did. So Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yes, I'm, I'm excited about what's out there. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and actually spending some time with our listeners on a very, very important topic, um, which is the how to care for and deal with people that have Alzheimer's. Uh, For my listeners, the book is Mike and Me. Um, In the blog, we're going to have a link to uh, the Mike and Me book website. Um, We will also uh, put links to Amazon where you can get this book. Um, We've been on with Rose Alice Peel, and she is the author of Mike and Me, an inspiring guide for couples who choose to face Alzheimer's together at home. Uh, Rose Alice, thanks so much for being on and spending some time with us. Um, It was very insightful, and I think for my listeners, do go up there 
Um, check the book out on Amazon. I think it's grown to want to be one of the better selling books on Alzheimer's disease. I think it's ranked 27th or something like that. So do go check it out. And uh, any parting words for the listeners, Rosales? Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being on. <laughs> 